Well, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Good to have you guys here. You'll have to forgive me. Someone brought me a coffee. It's a triple. And it's really good, so I can't let it go to waste. But the thing is, I've already had a triple this morning. So this study should be done in about 10 minutes. <laughs> this rate will get through it, no problem. You're all, woohoo! <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open it up to First John. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. They can get you one. There's a hand down here. We're going to be in chapter 4 today of First John. And as we've been looking at this book for the past six weeks or so, we, we've taken an example and looked and seeing how John is trying to express that in Christ there is life. And it seems almost that he, he's more concerned with impressing upon us this life than even the person of Jesus. In the chapter 1 he says, In Him was life. It was the light of all men. We saw in the Gospel of John that the light shines in darkness, that it doesn't understand it. But this life is what John is trying to impress upon us, that there is a life that God has, that he gives, that is connected to who he is. And as he goes moving forward in this life, he gives us some tests, some proofs that we could see if we have this life or not. Because it's very possible to be living but not be alive to be religious but not have the life of God. And John wants to make sure that there is an understanding that you know you have this life. And so he gives us some tests. We looked at the test that talks about having a life that is pure, that is truthful, a life that loves and that a life that doesn't hate. That that was evidence that this life is in us. He talked about a life that has intent. It has moral purpose. It's not in denial. It doesn't see its errors and dismiss them. It acknowledges them and allows God to deal with those things and forgives those things. We talked about that sin isn't a problem for God to deal with, and we all have it. It's denial that he has a problem with. When we deny the things that are within us and we just don't want to recognize them. And one of the evidences of this life is the recognition of who we really are as well as the recognition of how much we really need him. He then talked to us about a life of identification, that we walk as he walked. It's a life that is living as an expression, that obedience is an expression, it's not an obligation. It's something we do because it's someone we are. We're following after him, desiring to be like him so that there's an identity between us and God. And it's a life that is not like the world existing without God, but a life that is abiding in God's will. That it's not just following the patterns, the things that everyone else does and people do just without acknowledging God. It's connecting to God and to what He desires for us. And last week we talked about and laid this foundation of love that God has lavished on us. A love that is incredible and un beyond our ability to know, 
to fully understand. And we're engulfed in this love, and this love is to be a security for us. It's supposed to be a foundation that we can build our lives on, to know that God loves you, to know that he knows what's best for you, and move forward from there in that confidence that we don't have to appease him. We don't have to try and impress him. He already loves you. He already cares for you. And that's the foundation that we're building on here. We're going to build on that foundation. In fact, there is no evidence that this life of God is in us stronger than this one today that proves that God's life is within us. In fact, if we've ever experienced God's overwhelming love, then we're able to relate this with others. This is John's most important narrative because it was Jesus' most important narrative because it is the Scripture's most important narrative. In fact, without this, nothing else makes sense. This is kind of the key code to all of Scripture. Doesn't that sound impressive? If you want to know what this Bible is about, you have to understand the context, and this is the hinges that the doors rest on. Without this, we cannot understand anything that is in this book. And so let's read, starting chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, this is interesting because John is now bringing us this understanding that everyone who has known or experienced love in some way, some fashion, if you've been in love, if you've expressed love, if you have tasted of love, then you've dipped into the presence of God even if it's just for a moment. And this idea of love is now the central focus of what John is trying to bring out here. And that this is true for those who have faith and believe, as well as those who don't, that if you touch of this essence of love, you are actually experience an essence of who God is because this is who he is. And so he tells us that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. They know God in some manner because they've just experienced a part of him. They've just experienced a glimpse of who God is if they've experienced love. He goes on and he says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, this has been said so often that I think it becomes a little bit repetitious or even trite to us. And we can easily pass over it without understanding how deep this is. You see, if you want to put the whole history of the scriptures into three words, what everything this is about, God's dealing with mankind for all these centuries, it would be summed up in just these three words. God is love. And the understanding of what that means when 
we recognize how important love is to us, how necessary love is to us, we should begin to understand how necessary God is to us. Because love comes from Him. And so again, this is the foundation that we have. This is what is important to us. This is the life that we are supposed to live in and recognize and understand. And he goes on and he starts giving us some practical expressions of what this love is to look like. In verse 9 he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so John gives some practical and tangible realities that we can move into that gives this love basically substance. My favorite orange juice right now is that Simply Orange stuff. Have you guys tasted that? Oh, good stuff. If you leave it in the refrigerator for a while, the top gets really clear and kind of watery because all the pulp and everything settles to the bottom. And you have to shake it because otherwise, you know, the density stuff, the pulp goes to the bottom. Now, I know some of you think orange juice is better without pulp. Is any of you there? Do any of you not like pulp? Yeah, that's not orange juice, okay? That's orange drink, okay? <laughs> and I understand you live in California, you know, it's kind of just how you've been raised. I don't hold it against you. But you see, real orange juice has substance, it has pulp, it has that essence in it. And, and love, real love, has substance. And John tells us that you can actually see God when you see love in action. That it's something that is actually displayed. This is how we know what this is. How we understand not only God's love because we've seen what he has done in his son, giving his son for us before we even loved him. He gave his son. And not only that, he tells us that no one has ever seen God in verse 12, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, God is seen when you love one another. The invisible God becomes visible through our actions living out in this way of love. And people don't realize it and people don't understand that when they see these incredible acts of love, that they are getting a glimpse of the divine. And we have the opportunity to make God visible by how we act. I've had some great conversations this week. It's just been some deep and meaningful conversations throughout this week. And one of them, I was talking to this person, he, he came to give us a bid on some windows to get some tinting done and he came and he started talking to me about this. And he asked, well, what is this place that's down at our building? Uh, what, what is this? And I said, well, we're, you know, kind of a church. 
I always feel weird saying we're a church because people think different things. Anyway, that's my own thing. Uh, I said, we're kind of, this is a church office, a place where we meet and gather for different things, different functions. He said, okay. And he started writing. He goes, can I be open with you? And for me, that's like, ah, you know, yeah. <laughs> yes, please be open with me. You know, I, I wait all my life for someone to open and be open with me, you know. So, yeah, please. And he started talking to me about his problems with churches. You know, I have this problem with this church, and I have problems with this church, and the guy hasn't even given me the bid yet. And I'm like, wow, dude, you're not really pushing the sales aspect of this, you know. <laughs> but he started going on and talking about all these problems, and you know what? I basically said, yeah, I agree with all those problems. I have that problem, too. That's why, you know, I feel funny calling it a church sometimes, because we get identified with some of these things that are problems. Then he had some misconceptions that we got to talk about. And one of the things he said is, you know, I don't understand how, you know, God punishes people and why God stops loving us if we don't do what he says. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, if I have a, you know, if one of my kids, he had six kids, I had four, so he had me beat there. My kids do something wrong and say they have to go to jail and maybe it's really bad and they deserve to go to jail. I don't stop loving them. But God, when we do something wrong, he sends us to hell. And I just said, wait, wait, wait. I don't think you're understanding this correctly. God doesn't stop loving us. In fact, even when we were doing things wrong, he loved us and gave his son for us. And God doesn't stop loving us after we die. We, just like you mentioned, your son did some things wrong and he ends up in jail. Well, we pay the consequences for our own life. If you want to live a life that's separated from God your entire existence, God lets you continue in that life for all eternity. Those are our choices. God's the one who loves. And then I shared with him, you know, there is no other faith, there is no other religion where God has come for you. It doesn't matter if you're Buddhist and you think you have to be reincarnated and come again. It's a matter of you attaining enlightenment. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim and you have to please Allah and you're not sure what he needs and what needs to be done. You have to live a better life and make yourself better, make yourself better, and maybe you'll get to move on. Maybe you'll get to go to this heaven. Maybe you'll get to... Everyone has this maybe, and I can tell you this about yourself, that you know that you're not the person you need to be, that you know that you should be a better person than you are. You know that about yourself without me putting anything on you. And every other religion tells you, you need to fix that. But Jesus comes and says, I'll fix that for you. He is the only God who has come for you. This is love. This is what we need to understand. That God has come for us. It is a visible manifestation through the love Jesus has done for us and through the love we show one another that God is there. 
and that he's real. And it helps us to now identify and see the character and nature of God himself. This is the whole story of human history and God's dealing with us. And if you miss this, you will misinterpret everything. If you go through the scriptures and you don't have this backdrop, this understanding, everything else will be skewed. If you don't recognize that this is a story of God passionately pursuing mankind, then you'll think these things are, oh man, God doesn't care, God's mean. Just like if you walk in on a parent disciplining the child. Maybe they're spanking the child or they're smacking its hand and you think, oh man, she doesn't love that child, but you didn't see the child reaching for the stove a second earlier. All you saw was the discipline. If you don't understand, no, this mother loves the child. She is trying to take care of the child. She is nurturing so that they're going to be healthy and be able to move forward in their life. If we don't see that aspect of God, the scriptures don't make sense. And if we start pulling little pieces out, well, what about this? What about this? Understand the backdrop. Understand the foundation that God is love and he has always been pursuing after man. He's the one who made himself known to Abraham. He's the one who made himself known to Jacob. He's the one who spoke to Samuel when he was dreaming. He's the one who manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ, came down and walked among us. No other God has come for you. There is only one who cares enough about you to show up. And we can see him. And we see him in this love, in this expression of what he's doing. The story of Jesus dying on the cross is not so that he could win. It's so that he could win us because he loved us. And you need to understand that you are the object of that love. And that's what we talked about last week. That God has lavished this love on us. He's poured it out to us. And John is defining this picture. In verse 13, he goes on and he says, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we, knew, we know and rely on the love God has for us. We know and rely on the, God, the love God has for us. John is defining this picture. He's trying to make this clear as we search through our entire lives. We are looking for love. We are wanting love. From children to adults. It's interesting how I was reading about how there are a couple of things that define people. How we try and find something that we can excel at. Find a sense of competence. Something that we're good at. Because this competence gives us acceptance. And that's why you have people who are good at sports. I can play ball. Hey, buddy, you're good at ball. Yeah, now they like me. Why? Because I can, you know, throw a ball 90 miles an hour, or I could, I wish, you know, or I could sink a three-pointer. <laughs> I wish again. 
and we're competent at something and then we get accepted and it brings us into this understanding of, yes, I like the way this feels. I now have people who accept me and what we're really longing for is love. And it happens in every facet, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's technology, scientists. You know, they might not be very socially interactive, but they found something that they were competent in and it gave them acceptance and they were trying for that acceptance. And we're all trying to find this acceptance. But then when it comes to God, how, how do we find competence with God? How do we find acceptance with God? What can we do that impresses God? And we find ourselves deficient in all these areas, but God has reached out for us. God is the one who lives in us. And we see that all along it was God doing a work within us that is beyond what we can do. And with all these diversities of ways we try reaching out to find competence, trying to get acceptance, God is at work within each one of them trying to say, what you're really wanting is love. Another conversation I had with a person, he was telling me how, you know, he thinks that God is pretty simplistic and that people are pretty simplistic. That all you need to do is, you know, there's just a few things that you need to figure out and you can figure people out pretty easily. And I just kind of, really? I'm like, are you married? <laughs> and he kind of stopped and he said, yeah. And I go, so you got your wife all figured out now, have you? And he just kind of smiled and he got my point, you know. See, you can be a mathematical savant and still not know why she's upset with you. But what we want and what we desire is love, to be accepted. And so now we come into this picture where John is defining that because of Jesus, God now has accepted us right where we're at. And that we don't need to please him to gain his love. In fact, he goes on, the second part, verse 16 he says God is love there it is again whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him in this way love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear Because fear has to do with punishment. No one who fears is made perfect in love. This is incredible because now we're coming to this place where John takes what has been such a part of religion for all these years and in all these religions, the idea of fear, the idea of We've got something on you, and if you don't do things, you're going to get it. Fear and guilt. And and John says, I'm going to take these off the table completely. We're going to take fear, we're going to take judgment off the table. He wants to give us this understanding that God's love removes this fear removes this guilt 
And that's so hard for us because throughout the years, that's how we control people. You can't just tell people, just love God. Don't worry about what you do. You can't do that. It's going to be anarchy. What will people think? You say something like that, they're going to do all kinds of terrible things. How can you say something like that? To get them to be holy, to get them to be moral, we have to, to dangle them over hell if they don't act right. We have to, to let them know that if you don't do this, you're going to get something and this is going to happen to you and all these things are going to happen if you don't do things our way. And that's kind of how our society is built. I mean, that's what laws are about. Speed limit. Do you guys drive 65 because it just satisfies your soul? You know, oh yeah, 65, ah, this is it. I feel close to God when I'm doing 65. In fact, I'm only going to go 64. Because I don't want to push the limit. I'm going to go 64 in the fast lane, just to show you this is as fast as I want to go. I know you. No, we, we drive as fast as we can get away with. In fact, we all negotiate this in our minds. If I go 90, I'll get caught. But I think I can go 70, 75, because that's kind of the flow of traffic. So if I'm going that speed, I can stay invisible in the radar realm. Am I the only one who thinks this way, or are you guys... And so there's this, we, we do this, and so what would you have if you had this place where people weren't governed, you know, or had to be governed just by laws and just by, you know, these kinds of requirements? Well, you'd have what we have now. This is what we do. And we try and take this idea of laws and control, and we want to put it in this religious realm. You know, I could get everyone to drive 65 without a problem. You just up the stakes. You drive over 65, you lose a leg. <laughs> I'm telling you, I wouldn't be pushing close to 65. What if my speedometer's wrong? They catch me on the radar gun. That's uh, 67, buddy. Come over here. You have a clutch, what do you, you know? <laughs> You see, we think that if we up the consequences, we're going to change the person. And John says, no, take fear off the table. God is going to bank everything on love. I'm going to love you, and you have the freedom to love me back. I think it was Augustine when asked, he said, love God and do as you please. And puts the responsibility on us and our love for God, because that is the only thing that will keep us. I've shared it before. You can know the right thing, but if you love the wrong thing, you will make the wrong choices. And so what we need to do is love the right thing, and what God is doing is trying to win our love. He's trying to win our hearts, and when he wins our hearts, he wins all of us. A friend of mine, about a year ago, they were, weren't a follower of Christ. I knew them in a business sense. And they had had an affair. 
And they called me and said, hey, Sam, I just wanted to let you know I, I had an affair. I've, I've called it off. I've stopped it. I've talked to my spouse, and we're going to get some counseling. We're going to work this through. But I just wanted to call you and let you know. And, you know, our conversations together, they, they knew I was a person of faith. And they said, I, I wanted to call, and I wanted to ask for prayer. And... I wanted to get some advice from you. And I had this conversation with them and got a call recently from them again. They said, you know, I'm going through some difficult things. And I know some of it, it's just because of what I've done. I've reaped, I'm reaping what I've sown. But you see, some of this problem, it seems like other people are escalating it. This other person who was involved with the affair is not letting it go and is trying to cause damage to me and my family. And so now our kids who used to be friends with their kids, there's issues, of course, and we're moving our kids from one school to another school and taking them out of this recreation to another recreation. And now it seems like they're following us and we're having to move our kids and it's just becoming a mess. And then they said to me, I just wonder if God is punishing me for what I've done. My heart broke because let's take fear off the table. God is not here to punish you. God is here to help you. God is here to restore you. God is on your side. And the tragedy is these other people who are bringing these accusations and continuing these things are people who go to church, people who are supposedly people of faith, which is causing them to wonder, what's wrong? Am, are, am I wrong? Is God out to get me? I, I, I'm sad. I'm sorry that their daughter is now going to church, and I believe they're just close, close to having this relationship with God. And I got to share with them, you know, God doesn't want to punish you. Perfect love, God's love, casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. And God doesn't want you to think he's going to punish you. God wants you to think he's going to love you. He's going to help you. He's going to restore you. That's what he wants to do. And he's banking everything on it, everything on it. So I'm not here, I'm not going to tell you, well, yeah, God loves you, but if you do this one more time, I don't know. Love God and do as you please. God's love is going to be perfect. What if we ran our economy that way? What if we ran just civilization with this idea of love is what is ultimate, what is best, what is going to be necessary? What kind of government would we have? What kind of relationships and family interaction would we have if we really took this, if we didn't have to get vengeance, if we didn't have to get justice, if we didn't have to get our way, if we just cared about them and took fear and punishment off the board and said, no, we're going to love as God loves? What would happen? God would be seen. That's what would happen. God would be seen, and we'd be able to see that. There's a woman who wrote a book. Her name is Stephanie Kuntz. It's called How Love Conquered Marriage. And basically the sentiment of this book is before the 1800s, 
Marriages were basically a part of developing either, you know, these kind of interactions with family, their alliances for profit's sake, for peace sake. You know, we're going to give our daughter to you so that our tribes won't be at war. We're going to have alliance. We're going to make a profit. You know, I'll give you our daughter and you give us two goats and three chickens. Okay, five goats, five chickens. I don't want to offend anyone, you know. I mean, it was just this kind of interaction that was made for peace. It was made for alliance sake. That was a negotiation of some sort. And it wasn't until after the 1800s, she said, that love came into the picture where people started marrying for love. And when that took place, marriages became very susceptible to problems. They became very fragile. Because if you love someone, what happens when you stop feeling that love for them? Well, then you end the marriage. Where before, it's like, well, I love you, I don't love you, I'm married to you so our families can be at peace. If you and I aren't together, there's going to be war. Okay, that's a hindrance to getting a divorce. And so her whole process is saying that before the 1800s, love wasn't a part of marriage. After the 1800s, love came into picture. And she says that marriages became much more deep and satisfying, but much more fragile after the 1800s. There's a problem with her research. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And I'm pretty sure that was before the 1800s. Pretty sure. And you see, mankind is evolving, growing, and getting this idea that for a deep relationship, a deep marriage, there has to be love involved, but it is definitely more susceptible to problems. But that's the direction. If you want a deep relationship, you need to have love. And God all along has been love, has said, no, husbands, love your wives. God is on board and ahead of the curve on this one. He has always been about this. And they're just now catching up, trying to find out what God has always been about. And we need to recognize that God knows what he's doing. He understands just what's taking place. And this image of love, it's something that John talked about. It's something that Paul wrote about. It's something that Jesus exemplified because he did what the Father did. He said what the Father said. He was the example. What we need to do is recognize that example and live that example in our lives so that God can be seen. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke where you have the religious people see this person, they see the need, and they walk on by. But you have the Samaritan who sees the need and takes care of this person as he would want to be taking care of himself. Love each other even as you love yourself, Jesus said. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Let me give you a story. And he tells them the story of the Good Samaritan. And what he was doing is showing you that this Samaritan, this person who was irreligious in the Jewish person's eyes, saw this man through God's eyes. Where the other people, even though they had all the information, all the knowledge, they knew the scriptures, they knew all the history, they didn't see this person the way God sees this person. But the Samaritan comes along, he sees this person as God sees him, he does something, and all of a sudden in his example, God is seen. And you say, that person did what God does. That person lived how God lives. 
And that's our challenge, that we would act this way, that all of who God is, is love. And that would be something that we desire to be as well. We need to recognize the importance of this to be manifest in our life. We need to understand that not only does God love you, but God is love. And when you give of yourself to love, you gain. I think of my children, my kids. When my boys were born, I got nothing from them. They didn't even talk to me for a couple of years. They were demanding. They were users. <laughs> All they ever did was spit up on me, smear stuff on the wall. That was a story. They didn't do anything, but I found that as I loved them, then love exploded in my life. I found that I had more love to give. Not because I was getting something, but because I was giving something. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. You know, I, I hear so many people, especially singles in relationships, I just want someone who's going to meet my needs. <laughs> that's a nice burden to throw on someone. <laughs> that's attractive. I'm looking for you to satisfy all the things in my life. You up for the job? <laughs> what about looking at someone saying, I'm looking for someone whose needs I can meet? What about thinking of it in that way? And you see, if we start taking this concept and understanding of what love is, the example that God gave in loving us before we loved him, if we start doing that as husbands and wives, parents, start loving, not expecting to get, you will find that love will explode in your life, that it will increase. And love is a commodity that doesn't diminish. You know, when I married Corrine, I was a little bit afraid because... Not of her. Um, I was afraid of me that I couldn't love her properly. That what if I was unable to love her the way God loves her? And I loved my wife, and then we had twins. And I was like, oh, no. Well, I was that for a lot of reasons. But now it was like, okay, now I have to love my wife, and I have to love the twins I'll give each one of them 25%, and then I'll give Corrine 50%. Well, actually, I have to give her 51 because she was here first. You know, and I have to... No, when the twins were born, love exploded in my heart. I started loving more. It wasn't I had to divide love. Want me to get that? Uh, no. <laughs> I didn't have to start dividing love up in my life. I was able to just grow in love. And then my other son was born, Daniel. Here's the middle child, and I've heard all about the middle child syndrome. You know, mom's got, you know, 60%. These ones got 35%, and then coffee has 5%. So that doesn't really leave anything for the middle child, you know, kind of attitude. But I found myself just, again, growing in love. And I love my son Daniel in a totally different way, and my relationship with him is just incredible. 
then I had my baby, my daughter. Oh, no. Well, I said that again. But I, uh, <laughs> when she was born, my love just grew. Because love doesn't have a limit. The more you give, the more it grows. Because God is love. And the more you give of yourself in these things, the more you love, it will open your life to be deeper and deeper in God. The more you give yourself in this way, the more you will get. This is what Jesus did. He gave himself for us. He rose from the dead, not to retaliate. I teach you guys for crucifying me. He rose from the dead to bring redemption for us. He was postured with love. He continues with love. God can deliver you from bitterness. He can deliver you from any struggles that you're dealing with in this area of being hurt and being guilted. He can free you from fear, and he can fill you with love. And it's that love that makes us fully alive. And that's what God wants for us to experience his life. And as we give ourselves to him and give ourselves to others, we will find his life growing inside of us. Let's pray. Father, we all desire to be loved. And Lord, whether we recognize that or not, what we're really desiring is you. For you are love itself. You are love manifested. You are the essence of what love is. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that the more we love you and the more we love one another, that the more love we will have and the more our lives will be alive and be able to experience this life that you desire to give. And Father, you know the stories of everyone who is here, those who are struggling with guilt, those who are struggling with ideas that maybe have been put upon them. Father, those who see you in a way as not loving, maybe they've had bad examples in their lives of what love really is or someone who is supposed to be in a position of loving them has failed. Lord, I pray you would redeem that. You would win that back, that they would see the expression of your love in the person of Jesus and in us. Father, may we love as you love. May we recognize you've come for us. No one else has. When we were orphaned, you adopted us. You're the one who, who cleans us up, takes care of us, feeds us, nurtures us. And you're not expecting anything in return. You're doing it just because you were love. Father, may we see that and may we run to you. May we embrace you. May we cry, Daddy, and hold on to you, Lord. And may we represent you effectively as we love others, even as you have loved us. Father, may this evidence of life be in us that people will know we are following you because we love each other. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.